0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: Yeah, we got to start out with a little Brazilian music. I know, really, the runoff election yesterday, although Lula pulled out a win. It wasn't a big enough win, so we're a little worried about that. But, you know, go Lula. And... I mean, we can only have so many madmen running countries, right? There should be some kind of UN cap on this, you know, like how many crazy people can be in charge of a sovereign nation, of, you know, various sovereign nations. And I think we're over the cap right now. I don't, I haven't sort of done a back of the envelope calculation, but I think we are. All right. So, uh, first of all, this is ask or tell me anything. That means we have no guests booked. Boy, it really is warm in the studio. Our studio's been sort of fantastically cold to a point where we've actually had to uh, have Cat Pastor, you know, choppered out in Lifestar several times because she's just got so cold. But I feel like we might have overcorrected. I don't know. Either that or I'm overdressed. Anyway, the number is 888-720-WNPR. We don't have any guests today. We don't have any plan today. What do we have, actually? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have nothing. eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's not true. We got Lily Tyson, our senior producer, is in there screening calls, a job that uh, Mr. McPants typically does, but he has an airborne respiratory infection, otherwise known as a cold, from his school-aged, his suddenly school-aged little boy. Uh, and we got Cat Pastor uh, as our technical producer. We're going to be fine. But the number is eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero. Nine six seven seven, Uh, and we might as well get going with it. Oh, it's Dave. It's Dave from Lake Como, Ohio, the beautiful uh, Italianate resort area of Ohio. Hi, Dave. Yes, indeed. Hi, Colin. Nice to speak
3: with you, and thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, As I'm sure every, I think my topic really fits here. I'm very happy it fits your kind of wider, wider casting of the net. You know, as Mm -hmm. opposed to trivia. as all your listeners know, i 'm sure a new lawsuit was filed Thursday in federal court by Connecticut and national pro gun types and they 're seeking to overturn the ban on you know assault weapons, whatever you want to call them a r fifteens they call them sporting stuff, but anyway um even though Attorney General Tong made a very stout statement about how he was going to defend this to the last and so forth. Um I, I, I wonder how many other people besides me just had a nasty feeling in the pit of the stomach that despite all efforts, this is just this is just not going to go well.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think nasty feelings in the pit of one's stomach are entirely warranted. I mean, generally speaking these days and specifically speaking on this and there, you know, there you're going to see a lot of actions like this across the country because they have been emboldened by the Supreme Court decision on the New York law. Um, and But it, I mean, it's especially significant here in Connecticut because we have an unusually strong set of gun laws post-Sandy Hook. This is one of them, the one that you're talking about. And, you know, I mean, they know anyway that if they could get it all the way to the end of the road, there's a pot of gold waiting there, right? They know uh, if they could, you know, it's a long and difficult uh, and highly selective process process to get to the Supreme Court. And there's some bumps along the way and there's some cases that they might lose along the way. But they know they know it is possible to strike down what would appear to be pretty sensible, locally generated, uh, you know, state sovereignty based gun laws. So people yeah. should people should be worried about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also fitting, Dave from Lake Como, that you're calling today. It's the first Monday of October. That means the Supreme Court is in session right now. Uh, we know that they are a, uh, you know, the well that sort of six vote conservative majority is very emboldened from uh, last year. And as Ruth Marcus wrote wrote to the Washington Post, they're impatient too. They've been waiting a long time to get six votes and not have to depend on some flippy floppy Republican like, you know, Kennedy or, or now even, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, they, they, they can just bring it. They got the five, you know, maybe they've got six. And so, I mean, it's, I, I don't know that there's a really strong gun case on the docket this year, but what, you know, I mean, yeah, we're going to, until this particular phase of American history is over, we are going to see a lot of stuff like this. Yeah.
3: Living in a state as you know, where there are no prohibitions on concealed or any other type of carry. There's no background checks required. All you have to be is, I guess, 19 years old and while to go get, you know, a rocket launcher if you want it. Um, th- Connecticut is like this shining beacon of sensible laws. And, it, you know, we are trying like crazy to get back there within the next couple of years permanently. And this is part of the whole picture. If this goes away, and, of course, that would mean no state in the union is going to, have gun laws that are going to hold up if 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 connecticut's go down um it, it's really it, it's going to be tough to bear
2: right i mean if you look at the last session of the supreme court it, it and i'm speaking very simplistically and broadly right now but it's sort of hard not to see this as kind of an outcome seeking court as opposed to one that's following any particular pole star so you had on the one hand the you know, the reproductive rights, the abortion decision, Dobbs, which basically said there shouldn't be any federal guarantees of anything. It's all, you know, up to the states. And then <laughs> you had the New York state decision, which was saying nothing should be up to the states. You know, we should decide all of this kind of at the level of federal fiat. So, you know, I mean, basically it's which whichever way they want the case to turn out seems to be what guides them. Uh, and that used to be called judicial activism. It used to be something that was uh, a critique of conservatives against liberal ju- judges. I don't know. I, this, if this isn't, conserv- if this isn't uh, judicial activism, I don't know what it is. But, Dave, Absolutely. it has been very pleasant to visit with you. We can't wait for you to move back here. Although, when you move back here, I will be a little sad because there will be nobody in Lake Como who wants to call me. So I think before Dave moves back to Connecticut, he has to find a successor uh, on the gleaming shores of Lake Como, Ohio. Um, <laughs> which may be difficult because there is no such place. All right. So let's go. We have another Dave. We're not going to go all Dave today. All right. Um, but we are, we could do that. We could do a show where we only took calls from people named Dave. I have three close friends that I can think of named David, although n- I don't think any of them is a Dave. No, none of them. They're all Davids. All right. Here's Dave from New Britain. Hi. You're on the air.
1: Hey, Colin. First time uh, caller, longtime listener. Okay. I have a a local Connecticut pop cultural question for you. I want to know your take and your theory on this. Now, I grew up in Connecticut in the 1970s, and the TV show Hee Haw, which was a country music variety show, was so wildly popular in central Connecticut and basically all over Connecticut, especially among ethnic uh, Connecticut people, people that had grandparents that came over from Italy or Poland or Russia. And what's your take in theory why it was so popular here? The ratings were through the roof. I mean, Connecticut was their number one market for the TV show, Heehaw.
2: You know, I didn't know that about Connecticut, uh, but I believe you because you have uh, the air of sincerity uh, in saying that. But but I will say this. Look, people. I think people, cultural elites, <laughs> a term that I invoke you know not entirely seriously but cultural elites often don't understand why country music is popular and country music is popular kind of everywhere i mean if you go to i've been in uh, in towns like uh, good sized towns in ireland uh, on nights where it was easy to walk into two or three different live music venues and hear um, essentially American country music and much harder to find the place that had a traditional Irish music. Uh, I mean, it's, it's popular everywhere. Um, so that's number one. And you know, I mean, I don't, I wasn't a big hee-haw fan, but it was uh, Buck Owens. And who was the other host there? Was it Earl Scruggs? It was somebody like that. Uh, I mean, they had sort of good musicians on there and you know, those, and, and you know, Actually, Connecticut does have kind of a country music tradition here. It's not really the kind of thing you associate with Connecticut. But maybe the other part, portion of your point, and and the late Bruce Fraser, who was, the I think, the chairman of the Connecticut Council on the Humanities and stuff like that, he used to say that the kind of Hollywoodized or even sort of media – image of Connecticut is wrong, right? The media image of Connecticut is it's John Cheever, it's Catherine Hepburn, you know, it's all these kind of pointy-headed, over-educated people taking commuter trains to get home to their first, second, and third dry martinis, you know, and that really Connecticut's a pretty urban state. We do, as you suggest, have a lot of ethnic minorities. The waves of ethnic migration have come to Connecticut uh, as they have anywhere else, but, you know, maybe if you go back 120 years or so, even more so, this, this is a place where you had significant waves of um, ethnic migration, um, Irish, Italians, Jews, all, all coming here from uh, from Europe. Uh, and so, yeah, also country music is the music of the working class. We have a working class here in Connecticut. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's it's a little bit of a surprise to me if it's really true that he was more popular here it was in Mississippi or something. But on the other hand, another way to look at it is you don't really have to go very far out of your way in the South and Southwest to hear country music. Whereas in Connecticut, <laughs> you might actually have to tune in Hee Haw if you want to hear Buck Owen sing. I've got a tiger by the tail. It's plain to see. <laughs> That's my answer. What do you think
1: that's a great answer, I think too, is that we saw people on t v that didn't look like people in Connecticut. We were very ethnic looking in Connecticut, and we saw people that were blonde or you know it was it was like a phenomenon i mean it was it was a pop cultural sensation it was uh it was like an escape every Sunday to see that and uh, you learn new songs that you really didn't hear on the radio that much too
2: that's absolutely true um, by the way, uh, Lily Tyson, our senior producer. Often referred to as the Patsy Klein of Bark Hempstead, informs me that it was Buck Owens and Roy Clark. That's it. Roy Clark That's was the right. host. And you had, um, what is the name of the lady with the, uh, was it Fanny Flag? Who was the woman who had like the price tag? No, no, it was Minnie Pearl. Minnie, oh, Pearl. Minnie Pearl. Minnie Pearl. Yeah, she had the price tag coming off her uh, her hat and stuff like that. I don't know. It was, it was yeah, it was sort of corny jokes. It was, um, as you say, there, you know, it's, Typically, there's not a strong W E X T. I I think, for a while in Connecticut was a country station. We have country stations from time to time, and I guess 92.5 or something, I think that's a country station right now. But, but yeah, there's not a lot of it around, you know. So, yeah, that's another reason. I think also there's a way in which a show like Hee is kind of a refuge from everything that we associate with Connecticut, too. It's like, okay, I'd like to take a break from Connecticut and watch people tell really stupid jokes—not really stupid jokes, that's not fair—kind of corny jokes— uh, and play their banjos and guitars. I love the question, though, Dave. It's like probably gonna be my favorite question of the day. Thank
1: you. Oh, it's great talking to you, Colin. It's
2: great to talk to you too, Dave. I've got a tiger by the tail. It's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. I don't know the rest of the song. Um, all right. <laughs> Here's, okay, I think this is going to be a more serious call. Here's Heather from Waterbury. By the way, if you want to call in, because we have lots of open lines today, and I don't know if people were even expecting this opportunity, the number is 888-720-WNPR. And I'll say this more slowly and less alphanumerically, 888-720-9677. And you can actually call in and ask a broad philosophical question. For example, you could say, Colin, why is life a grotesque pantomime. Or you could also, I mean, Dave said, Dave number one, Dave from Lake Como said, no trivia. That's not true, you can ask trivia. You just can't ask me really hard questions that I don't know the answer to, which would be a lot of questions actually. Here is uh, Heather from Waterbury. Hi Heather, you have the floor
4: and oh my goodness i hope i'm not asking you a too hard of a question that you don't know the answer but you're a plethora of knowledge so i figured i'd ask
2: i am a plethora um,
4: so um okay so my daughter is desperately searching housing um what's the state of the the housing um, rental situation in connecticut She's on Section 8, and she is having such a difficult time.
2: Yeah, especially with Section 8, I think, you know, it's super, super difficult. Now, some of the problem, if she's on Section 8, is, as has been kind of well and extensively covered here in Connecticut, I mean, there's just a lot of communities that will do almost anything to keep affordable housing out. Um, They just see affordable housing as not a net win for them, Uh, and Mm -hmm. you may have noticed that That uh, Bob Stefanowski in his campaign uh, was talking about overturning E30G or whatever that provision is about affordable housing. So, yeah, first of all, structurally in Connecticut, it's not set up for young people without a tremendous amount of means uh, to to be able to rent. And, And that can be part of our doom. I mean, we've been asking ourselves for years, why do we have net population losses? Why can't we keep young people in the state? Why do they go to high school here, then go to college, and then they won't they won't come back? Well, I think your daughter's probably a pretty good example. One reason they don't come back is we make it super difficult uh, for them to find anything affordable here. So, so yeah. It, it, and then, I mean, the, the other thing that drove this, obviously, is During the pandemic, there were more and more people who were, for various reasons, less interested in urban environments. And certainly this is true for some of the younger millennials and some of the older Gen Zers. You know, this is this was the goal for a long time. Get to a city, get to a really interesting, exciting city. And then I think during the the pandemic, that lost a little bit of its luster. So I think there's, you know, a little bit of a supply and demand issue.
4: And, you know, I mean, it's really hard to navigate all of the. Like, I mean, she's she's got autism and um, she's on the spectrum and she's developmentally like um, really low. Um, and it's really hard to navigate like all of the paperwork and everything. Like I'm trying to help her and I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm like, I can't even figure out some of this stuff. I mean, it's, it's you know, these, these things are put in place to help people, but then for the people that they help, it makes it so difficult. They have to, like, jump through hoops.
2: Right. So one thing I'll say, Heather, is I'll kind of put it out there because there, there are housing advocacy groups. Um, in fact, there's one that I've even... Gave their, I think I gave their annual address one year, but I can't <laughs> can't bring the name of it to mind right now. But there are groups. If anybody hears this and they have a suggestion, because like what it sounds like, what you guys need is some kind of mediation, some kind of mediating factor. I mean, somebody who could sort of step in and say, "Yes, I know how to do this. I know how to get through this paperwork. It's second nature yeah. to me." Um, I mean,
4: she's. Not, she's not on disability or anything she just has section eight housing so, right I mean that's we don't have we don't have anyone to help us
2: well maybe you do though um okay. what uh congressional district does either she or well she doesn't I could maybe have a have a place to live right now uh, <laughs> who who would be a relevant uh, relevant congress either for you or for her
4: uh- um, I'm not sure. Like maybe Johanna Hayes. I don't know or, Congress. Like I'm not sure who that is, but I know that she's like in well, our
2: district and yeah. like. Yeah. So you're if you're in Waterbury, yeah, it would be Johanna yeah. Hayes, I believe. And so you could start there. I mean, one thing that uh, Congress people, members of Congress do is they have constituent services. Now, there's a wide variety of competence. Uh, in that whole area, and I don't know anything about Johanna Hayes' Connecticut staff or anything, but I, I would call, you know, her her district office and see if there's anybody there who can help with the paperwork and stuff like that, because that's what they're there for. It's a big part of why they're there. And ah. I, I certainly, mm-hmm. in Section 8's of federal program, so once again, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. they, it, it, this may be a really terrible suggestion. You may not get anywhere, but um, I would do it anyway. I would do, like if you can, the first thing you've got to do is identify what specifically is the problem. the The problem is a availability of, of Section eight. But, but with the, when it comes to the paperwork, the stuff that's really hard to to navigate for you to help your daughter, it seems to me if you could sort of write down in a couple of clear sentences what that problem is, and then call, you're more likely to get the help that you need, or to be told, "Oh no, we don't know how to help you with that." Um, But there are, you know, there are housing advocacy groups around the state too. I I don't know what there's, I don't know Waterbury that well. I don't know the fifth district that well. But you know, I I would say ask for help. Uh, It's the it's the thing we always forget to do is ask for help. So, um, um, so that may not. I mean, you asked me for help, and I'm totally useless. But, um, but that can't be helped. All right. So our number. I have several things to tell you. Eight eight eight. 720 WNPR. That's the number you would call if you wanted to ask or tell me anything. 888 720 9677 I should mention that I have here, I have here a bundle of Mr. Carp envelopes. Mr. Karp, I, I don't have time to explain all this, but because I have to explain it every time, and that's cumbersome. But Mr. Carp, just accept the fact that Mr. Carp is possibly the smartest person in the world. You know, I mean, until somebody else comes along and, and dislodges him or, you know, he's somewhere. He's in the conversation. That's what we would say. Mr. Karp is somewhere in the conversations for smartest person in the world. And one of the things that he does, and I realize this doesn't necessarily seem like an activity that the smartest person in the world would do, but he uh, <laughs> he, he clips things out of publications, out of physical publications. He puts them in physical envelopes, which he has repurposed. I, I've never received any kind of mail from Mr. Carp that was in an envelope that he bought for the purpose of mailing something to me, despite the fact that Mr. Carp has done very well in life, I mean he could afford a new envelope if he wanted one. Anyway, he clips things out, he underlines them. I'm just saying, if you get bored with um, me and or whatever, uh, you can call me and just say please um, open one of the Mr. Carp envelopes, or you can say the code words. If you say either pineapple or platypus. It's especially good if you work them into a sentence. That means I have to open a Mr. Carp envelope. And then when I do, the way the way it works is I, I have to discuss what's inside. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, people don't believe it, but the, I'm standing here. I can't, I could show it to Lily, but she's looking at the screen right now. But it's like, I have these envelopes. They're here and, and they're sealed. I don't know what's in them. And they're an opportunity, and they're another opportunity, opportunity for me to fail at this. All right, so. Um, very excited. This is my first day back. I was off all last week. So it's exciting to come back here and, and test myself. All right, let's talk to Levi Levi in West Hartford. Hi, you're on the air.
5: Hi, Colin. Um, your first caller oh, got me, me thinking. Uh that uh, you know, it's inter- you're you're right. It's interesting that uh, the Supreme Court seems happy to uh, to put uh, gun laws as something managed on the federal level and abortion laws is something that's managed by the state. And Uh, It strikes me that one reason why this might be so is that there are a lot of people, a lot of people who take the Second Amendment very, very seriously. But uh, if we look back at Roe and we remember that this was an implied right under the Ninth Amendment, no one takes the Ninth Amendment seriously anymore.
2: Right. I, I think that's fair, and that's why when I was saying that before, I was saying this is a very broad and simplistic statement, uh, for exactly the reason that you're saying it's not as though that they can't come up with some kind of rationale for the difference between gu- guaranteeing and solidifying a right at the federal level and weakening the federal right on a different, you know, in a different area of life. But you're right; they're not equivalents. I mean. F-
5: for I better mean, or worse. They
2: should be. Yeah. They
5: should be. But the problem is that even the liberal justices, they might have taken the Ninth Amendment less seriously than the conservative ones. God help us. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, I mean, one of the cases that, that deeply concerns me today that no one will talk about, where, uh, where you know, th- it seems like it should be clear in the Constitution, is ca- the Castro Huerta case that was resolved last season. Um, I mean, it, it was a It was a Castro Huerta wasn't a great defendant. He abused a child, but he did it on a Native American reservation. And the Supreme Court said that the state of Oklahoma could go in and prosecute him for things he had done on the sovereign territory of a Native American nation. Um, And, you know, this was something that was mostly decided by the conservatives. And and, I mean, it bothers me because this, you know, that the way we relate to sovereign Native nations in with within the U.S. borders isn't yet a totally partisan and stupid issue. It's something where people can still think about it without having to worry about offending party lines. Um, but you know, when I when I wrote to my legislators about it, I got letters back about Dobbs. So right. the, you know, it's uh, it's it, it, even our legislators aren't thinking about it, and I, I'd like to encourage. Uh, listeners to look into the Castro Huerta case.
2: Right. And, and I don't know that much about, about that case, but I do know that one of the um, re so there was a previous decision called McGirt uh, that had gone the other way on, I think, on tribal sovereignty. And when Ginsburg w- went off the court and, and Coney Barrett replaced uh, Ginsburg, that's when Oklahoma filed. And, and that's, that's a pattern I think you're going to see. It's the thing I was saying uh, about the CCDL lawsuit here in Connecticut, too. If they know, you know, if they know there's a different set of votes on the court, then people seeking or interests, uh, entities seeking a certain kind of outcome will look for a case, look for a new case. I mean, and sure. that probably works both ways. In fact, it definitely works both ways. I mean, the day that there's a 6-3 liberal majority on the court, you're going to see a lot of filings to pursue gains that can be reaped from a set of votes like that. But it's certainly you're absolutely right that and I haven't I haven't really followed that case. But you're right that it's a landmark case in terms of kind of reversing essentially centuries of thinking about tribal sovereignty. It's, it is a hard case to argue from the side that you and I might argue it from for the reason that you said. It's an unsympathetic defendant, but that's supposed to not get in the way of appellate questions like this. So anyway. Uh, interesting call. We will take a break right now. And we have lots of calls here. And all right, it looks very interesting. <laughs> I, I, I sound, I'm sound i just doing primary process. You're just hearing me look at the call board. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come right back. I get to pick out the music for these shows. I'm just telling you, it brings me happiness. All right. So welcome to another Ask or Tell Me Anything. We're having a lot of fun here. 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. That would be the number that you could call uh, if you wanted to speak on the air. Uh, And, um, hmm, boy, they're all, they all look very interesting, but uh, I'm going to, for reason, reasons connected to my own prejudices, go to Rick from Bethany. Hi, Rick. You're on the air.
5: Hi, Colin. How are you? Good.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a question for you. Yeah. How do we know God has a sense of humor? I know that the answer that you're going to come up with, but I think that we, if we know that God has a sense of humor, it's because we have a sense of humor, um, and uh, I actually, in my week off, I thought a lot about this, um, uh, not just about this, but you know, what does it mean? Because I was at the ocean, I was up in in Wellfleet, you know, and and I would walk along the ocean every day and stare at it. And you, when you do that, you start thinking about talking to God, anyway, because the sky is so big and the ocean is so vast. And 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 I was I'm mean, having going through some various family crises and stuff, and I was sort of asking. God questions about that. Um, and because life seems incredibly hard a lot of the time. In fact, uh, let me also just sort of deviate and say that we're, as of this morning, thinking about doing a show about that very question. Like, why is life so hard? How should we respond philosophically to how hard life is? There's a uh, a new book out called, in fact, Life is Hard. Let's see, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way uh, by Kieran Sataya. And I was reading a review of that in the Los Angeles re- Review of Books this morning thinking, oh, we should just do a show about that. Because, you know, from the time of Kind of the clash between Schopenhauer and Leibniz. You know, we've been asking ourselves these questions for a long time. But I do believe that if there's a God, and if we have a sense of humor, that means because that means God gave us a sense of humor, uh, probably because He was going to throw so much horrible crap out at us. <laughs> you know, you're, but anyway, you have a more succinct answer, I believe. Well,
5: the the question I had was, of course, how do we know God has a sense of humor? And uh, it's because He Gave us the platypus.
2: All right, so that means you have to open a Mr. Carp envelope. I'm going to ask you to pick a number between one and seven. Two. Two, all right, this number. Yeah, envelope. I have quite a few Mr. Carp envelopes here. you get going to open, open number two one. This has been very, very carefully sealed. All right, let's see. What we're going to get out of here. I think this is Lily Tyson's first experience with a uh, Mr. Carp envelope being opened on the air. And it's also a little tension, you know, a little bit of a tension convention here because well, I think there's only one clip in here, so it's whatever it is, oh. I know, very, whatever it is, got to be able to do it. Uh, and it looks like oh, which, it's hard to tell which things he is tactically underlined. Um, it looks like, oh, it says Fourth Estate. What publication is this? This is from Hartford Business. You never know it. Publications, Mr. Carp gets amid news industry struggles. CT's media landscape faces significant changes. And then he's underlined uh, uh, various things about uh, Connecticut Magazine, uh, the uh, about how Hearst uh, has aggressively poached former Hartford Current reporters and editors. I would be sort of theoretically one of those people who was poached. So this is mostly about the the. the
5: The gutting of our local media.
2: Yeah, the gutting of our local media or the reconfiguring of our local media. Because, yes, obviously, uh, traditional legacy media is unbelievably challenged. Although I think if you look at Connecticut in in its entirety— you have to sort of say that, well, there were there was no New Haven Independent, there was no Connecticut Mirror, there was no CT News Junkie when all this got started. Back in the 90s, when, you know, and what was happening back in the 90s was a lot of legacy news executives, the people who were running big newspapers in Connecticut and probably the people running big TV stations. And I have to say kind of a lot of the people here in public broadcasting, although not all of them, but in the 90s all of them they were like people standing on the beach at phuket watching a tidal wave coming towards them and and sort of saying do you think we'll get wet i don't think no i probably i think we probably won't get wet from this i mean there's an enormous tidal wave coming towards you so um and and so they they didn't prepare, uh, they didn't get the sandbags, they didn't move off the beach, uh, and they got swamped. And so you have legacy publications like the Hartford Current, America's oldest daily newspaper and continuous publication, that you know were eviscerated partly because of the digital revolution, and then because of its acquisition by increasingly rapacious owners, uh, who were less and less interested in restocking the shelves, and more and more interested in just eating all uh, up all the canned beans and, and throwing. Uh, everything else and recycle. So, um, you know, but but there's a lot of innovation too. Like this company, Connecticut Public. We now have one of the larger newsrooms uh, in the state. When I first got here, you couldn't come close to saying something like that. But we have an investigative unit here. We have a pretty large reporting staff. A bunch of editors. At one point, we had more photographers working here than the Hartford Current, which is funny if you think of us as primarily you know, either a radio or a TV entity. What do we need photographers for? But the people who are running this place right now are committed to making us, you know, a significant journalistic force. And, you know, Hearst Hearst ultimately did not take this stuff lying down. I mean, this is another one of my employers, but, you know, they ultimately decided that they were going to beef up and they were going to try to you know, kind of corner certain markets. And, and then, really, the, the work done by the independents. What Paul Bass did with the New Haven Independent, that's a, a model to the nation. It's something that's looked at uh, by the other 49 states. Uh, and, and I think CT News Junkie and, and Connecticut Mirror, these are really good, you know, really fine platforms. They, they, they have narrower objectives. What we really lost Rick you're going to be sorry you had me open this envelope but um, I'll stop being I'll stop being boring what we really lost was generalism when i first so when i got out of college i went to work for the Hartford current i worked there for 19 years and what you had was a really large reporting staff that included a lot of generalists and also a commitment to being the equivalent, the information equivalent of a supermarket, you know? I mean, we had a classical music critic. You know? uh, we had, you know, we, I mean, we had a really large and, and strong arts and culture staff. We had a very uh, strong and well-staffed lifestyle department. Uh, and, and then we had, you know, we had reporters all over the state. We had bureaus all over the state. We had a, I almost went to the Groton Bureau when I when I was hired by the Hartford Current. And so all of that stuff kind of had to go away and the mission shrank down. And I think one of the things that really has been hurt the most, I mean, I think the patch.coms, the hyperlocals, they've stepped in and done, you know, a pretty decent job of covering some of the towns. Uh, all the institutions that I just talked about before, I think, are covering government and politics and stuff like that really well. Actually, I think the biggest the biggest hurt was arts and culture um and you know we try to do some stuff here and ray hardman definitely is like taking the lead you know and giving us some really great arts reporting but he's one human being and and i and really there isn't the kind of thing that we used to have. There are some fine people doing some hard work at a lot of different publications, but there aren't enough. Uh, and, and I think the idea of having an arts community where you have journalism being done about it, uh, where you have plays being reviewed by, you know, I mean, I worked for a critic named Malcolm Johnson who could have been a theater critic anywhere. Um, that's the thing that we kind of lost. And it's kind of sad. But you know what? Change. Change is the only constant, right? all right i gotta go uh but uh pet a platypus for me and uh, thanks for your call i'll just go up this line here is that what i should do i I have no idea um all right so here's oh here's yeah so evelyn goes with rick from bethany i think i mean not you know in a personal way but uh, so evelyn (laughs) from plantsville you're on the air
6: Hi, Colin. Um, I, I'm quite disturbed about an article that I read in the Hartford Current about um, the town of Weathersfield considering using uh, part of their $8 million dollar COVID relief package to develop a sports complex. I wonder if you have any comment on that. There's just so much more they can do with that money to, especially the school systems that need to be updated with air filtration, buying computers, setting up you know alternative means of education. My son, you know, was in the middle of that COVID when he was a a junior at a tech school and he lost so much, a year and a half of, you know, losing the ability to learn his trade because of the, you know, it was an emergency, nobody knew what to do. I know it's a little settled now and everybody's tired of hearing about COVID-19, but I'm just outraged and I'm surprised that the people of Wethersfield aren't outraged about using that money for a sports complex rather than what it was supposed
2: to do. Well, so there's a lot there. And first of all, I have to say, I didn't read that article. I don't know about this. And I also don't know how the regs that were written for the disbursement of that money um, map Onto the situation that you're talking about, Uh, I will say that if you look around the rest of the country, uh, there's some risk associated with these things. Brett Favre and some other people in Mississippi are being uh, being tried right now, uh, being prosecuted right now for appropriating anti-poverty money for uh, things like women's volleyball facilities. You know, multi-billion-dollar. yeah, I so, read that. Yeah. So, so you got to be careful how you use this money. It does come with specs about what you can do with it. I think you're. First of all, you've said most of what I would say, which is that anybody who thinks that the mission is over is nuts. And, and even if you thought that COVID nineteen was over, which it is not, I think we're about to have a fourth wave. Some of the early indicators, the leading indicators, ranging from wastewater here to spikes over in the United Kingdom, which seems to, once again, be a little bit ahead of us in a, in a bad way. Um, a lot of indications uh, to me are with the school year resuming, windows closing because of the cold weather, uh, and, you know, variants that haven't really been effectively dealt with, and an under-boosted American population. I mean, we're pretty good here in Connecticut, but it's like 32, 33 percent of Americans nationwide uh, have had um, had anything that you could call a booster shot, uh, even one booster shot months and months and months ago. Uh, that's yeah. incredibly low. And obviously the fact that Connecticut's better is good. But really, you know, it's this is a big swimming pool. So if you pee in Oklahoma, it's going to get over here somehow. I mean, nobody's safe until everybody's safe. So so that you're right. And filtration, the whole HVAC component, air exchange, And filtration is incredibly important in terms of non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, as they're called. You know, I mean, masking seems to be kind of dead, at least as a mandate. Uh, It's now a personal choice and one that you're kind of over scrutinized for if you make it. Um, So, I mean, the next line is spending a lot of money. Uh, on air systems. And even if you thought COVID-19 was over, something else is coming. I mean, we're probably going to have a pretty tough respiratory year this year, just generally speaking, between that. uh, Some of the epidemiologists think flu is going to be worse this time around. Uh, And there's just like other stuff coming. There's other bugs already out there. And God knows, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is not the the last fatal virus that we'll see in our lifetimes. So Yeah. yeah, spend the money where you're supposed to spend it. I know everybody loves to spend money on sports yeah, uh, I was one of the people who, you know, had to fight with people about bringing the New England Patriots uh, to Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and paying just this insane amount of money to do it, and people are always willing to spend. People who object to the government spending money on basic kinds of things, you know, to lift children out of poverty, they hate stuff like that. But you know, a one point six you know billion dollar sports facility. Oh, fine. If to get the NFL here, we should definitely do it. So yeah, yeah I, I you know I don't know. I feel your pain, and I <laughs> but I don't know what else to say want- about it. Whoops, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, but I do have to go to a break. I'm sorry for cutting you off, but um, we, we do need a break right here. We will come back. We have calls. I wouldn't even get out the phone number at the moment because we do have a lot of calls. And so it's Ask or Tell Me Anything. I'll talk to you on the other side of this. Right, uh, we are back. It's time to say some thank yous. Cat Pastor is our producer, our technical producer today, and most days, and we're happy about that. Lily Tyson is our senior producer. She's not typically the person here screening calls; that would be Mister McPants. Uh, but Lily Tyson, as we have discovered, can do anything. In fact, that should be an um, like sort of an auxiliary piece of the ask or tell me anything shows. I mean, I I get you have to ask or tell me things, but you could also ask Lily Tyson to perform some feat of. Strength or, con, or competence, something like that. We'll we'll work on that. It's hard to figure out how to incorporate it into the format, but it's it's definitely a thing. Uh, all right. So, oh, a couple of things. Well, actually, I can do this while I talk to Adrienne. Uh, so why don't we do that? Uh, wait a minute. No, that's hi not, hi hi, hi Audrienne. Actually, you're hi. not the person I'm going to talk to about this. But say your thing.
0: Thank you. So I think we're playing nuclear chicken with 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 Russia, and we've got to stop that. Uh, we're in denial that that something could could happen. We're hoping it doesn't. That's not good enough. And I think as the uh, developers of the bomb and the droppers of the bomb in Japan, it's incumbent upon us to go to the table first and say, "Okay, nuclear disarmament, total, is on the table. We have to do it now." And if for, for people on let's say the Republican uh, uh, side of the divide, remember that it was. Reagan and Gorbachev, right back almost got there, mm-hmm. and the objection was what was that we wouldn't budge on Star Wars. Um, so um, I think we have to we have to do this now. We can't just hope nothing happens.
2: Right. I mean, unfortunately, there's a world of difference between Gorbachev and this fellow Putin. Uh, of, of course there is. And that's that's really the difficult yeah. part of it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, unfortunately, it's also it's hard to negotiate something like nuclear disarmament while hospi- hostilities are ongoing, because you're essentially asking Putin, who's probably not a reasonable person about this under the best of circumstances to sort of say, all right, you know, put your take your ace in the hole and put it down on the table and don't pick it up again. Uh, I, I think it is going to be hard. Uh, I agree that it is a game of nuclear chicken. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think also you never quite know what kinds of safeguards there are in any kind of country. I mean, one of the things that shocked me was a Radio Lab a few years ago uh, did a uh, did an entire episode about w- what restrictions exist, what kinds of fail-safe mechanisms exist, should a somewhat irrational president decide that he wanted to launch a nuclear preemptive strike or something like that. I, I wonder why they, that, that topic occurred to them. But anyway, um, what they found was none, basically. It is, you know, unless some general decides to essentially break a rule, you know, I mean, our house is not in order either. Our house is set up for a disaster of this kind. But, I mean, what you need is, uh, you need an electorate. You need need a population. In all nuclear powers, in all states that are nuclear powers, you need voters and you need people who, you need the common electorate to want this, enough to put pressure on their leaders. Those places where there is anything resembling free and fair elections, which might not even be here anymore. Uh, Anyway, all right, so... Running out of time here, but here's Mary Jane in North Stonington. I could say more about that nuclear chicken stuff, but I think I've talked about it here in the past as well. Um, but here's um, here's Mary Jane. Hi, what's on your mind?
1: Oh,
7: hi, uh, Colin. I just wanted to suggest two topics for um, shows, and one is what is fascism? I think fascism allows you to own things, property or other things, Whereas, say, communism, you don't really own anything because the state owns everything. But you have such a deep, um, you have so many people that like history and politics. I think that people could perhaps call in with good definitions of fascism. And then also book censorship, which is becoming popular. And maybe some of the stuff about why that's happening Right. As a retired librarian, I'd like to see some talking about book censorship.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it, both of those things a little bit in the past. I can't remember whether we ever did a full fascism show. I guess we didn't. There's a guy; he's an academic, I think, somewhere in the Beltway area, at a university somewhere in the Beltway area. Who I'm blocking his name right now, but he he has this kind of um, fascism checklist where, like, there's certain criteria. And if you meet enough of them, you have a fascist state or a fascist leader. Uh, and he he wrote one piece for The Washington Post about this years ago. And then when Trump came in, he kind of updated his fascism checklist and he he went through it to see to what degree it applied to Trump. So if we did the fascism show, I would definitely want to have that guy on. So I would have to remember that his would, name. I
7: think that would be interesting with the um, election in Italy yep. and some of this funny Stuff that's sort of in the air about fascist type groups that like the style. They like the style of marching around, and it kind of appeals maybe to young people.
2: Yeah, that's but no, it's that's really good new
7: on the horizon. Yeah,
2: that's good. That's really good. And I, Lily Tyson, is in there nodding. I think to you. That's and you just even described uh, uh, this. There's something that is now referred to uh, in all reaches of national public radio. Uh, they talk about it at the headquarters in, in Washington, D.C. It's known as the Lily Tyson pivot. And that's when you take a topic like fascism and then you you turn it suddenly in the middle of the show or towards the end of the show. Like to the that. What you just said, the fashion the, the fascist aesthetic, the fascist fashion, the the way in which, you know, there there might be something visually or stylistically appealing about fascism to certain people. I do. As long as you have brought all this stuff, when I mentioned some things that we're doing tomorrow, we have a show about lists. Um And that's all I'm going to say about it, because I haven't done my homework yet. Uh, but one that a lot of you might be interested in, including you, Mary Jane from North Stonington, unless a mountain lion has eaten you since I hung up or I put you on hold, because mountain lions, they have mountain lions in North Stonington if they have them anywhere. But we're doing a show. We had this conversation out on my deck a few weeks ago. Uh, about w- what we were going to do during this election season because our show is a little weird and we don't necessarily cover politics or anything else the way we're supposed to. And we wound up, ta- <laughs> we wound up talking about whether... Whether you can make a compelling argument for people to care about politics, is there a reason to care about it? Or are people so en- enervated and so discouraged by the polarization uh, and, and the, the just gridlocking of everything that it's pretty hard to make an argument that you should care about politics? And in the middle of having this conversation where I was just depressing the crap out of everybody— uh, with with saying was sort of making that or asking that question, Bill Curry, two time candidate for governor, and many other things. He happened to be calling me about something else. And I put him on speakerphone and I said, tell all the producers why we should care about politics. And he gave very eloquent speech uh, about, you know, I can't remember what he said because I don't usually listen while he's talking. But I know that he said something very powerful. And, and it kind of got us thinking, we're going to do that show on Thursday. We're going to do a show just on that question of why should you care about politics? You know, what's the what's the case for? it? I think we know the case against it. What's the case for it? Uh, So we've got all of that coming up and we're going to do the news on Friday. And we're also working on some other kind of politically oriented shows. We don't have one on fascism on the pipe. uh, We We have sort of the opposite show. Lily and I are also working on a show about centrism, which I think. And David French wrote over the weekend, the real divide isn't between left and right. It's between centrism and extremism. All right, we have to stop there. Thanks for asking and telling me everything. And we say goodbye now. Thanks.